You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. So look for the guys' names and go two books to the right. You'll be right there. Romans chapter 8. And let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. This is God's word. A few years ago, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, found out that he was adopted. It's kind of one of those, kind of almost like, you know, you would think of like a horror story, right? Like this should never happen this way, but it happened. Because here in the U.S., right, we have laws that actually require parents who adopt to disclose to their children by a certain age that they're adopted. But this happened outside the U.S. where they didn't have that law. And, and so here's, here's what happened to my friend. He was raised in a kind of, you know, traditional uh, home you know, exactly what um, you would expect of a traditional home, right? His mom and dad were married. They never got divorced. He had a grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, just like many of you do. And one day, he was in college, and his dad got sick. And a short time later, his dad died. And after his dad died, one of his relatives came up to him and handed him a letter. It was a letter written to my friend from his dad who had died, and he had asked this family member to give this letter to his son when he died. And so my friend opens up this letter, and just imagine what this must have been like. He opens up this letter, and he starts reading it, and it says, Son, I love you. There's something I need to tell you. I I was never uh, brave enough. I never had the courage enough to tell you uh, while I was alive, but I want you to know you're adopted. And uh, he says, we adopted you when you were a baby, and we raised you as our own, and we love you. It doesn't change how we feel about you, but I I felt like you should know. Now just try to imagine what that was like for somebody to receive that letter, right? The, the flood of thoughts and emotions that would go through your mind when you receive a letter like that. All those thoughts that you had growing up that you kind of dismissed, right? Those thoughts that maybe I'm a little different and you just dismissed them and said, oh, no, 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 and you just said whatever and move on. And now they all come rushing back into your mind. Like, why is it that I'm the only one in the family with curly hair, right? Like, why is it that no one in my family ever said, you look like your dad or you have your grandpa's chin or your mom's eyes? And now all of those thoughts that you dismiss, they all come flooding back. Did my cousins know? Did everybody in my family know? Did they treat me differently because I was adopted? Did everybody in my family know I was adopted except for me? And they kept it a secret. And it's my life. That doesn't seem fair, right? How could they do that to me? I should be the one who knows. And my friend told me when he got this letter, he was just so angry and upset, and he got very depressed. He said he went into very deep depression. He felt that his whole life had been a lie, and that his own parents had lied to him for his entire life, his family members and everybody. He became very angry, very depressed. Uh, But he said that after a while, he had this kind of moment of clarity, where what he realized is that these people loved him. They, They loved him, and they took care of him, and they called him son. And they gave him a family when he didn't have a family. And they treated him as their own, so much so that he never even thought that he was adopted, right? And perhaps most significantly, they chose him, right? They chose him. They didn't have to, but they did. And they placed their love on him. And they brought him up in their home and raised him and taught him. They celebrated his successes. They encouraged him. 
And yeah, they never told him he was adopted, even though probably they should have. But the reason they didn't was because they didn't want him to feel like he was less than or less valuable or less a part of the family because of that. And he said that from that day on, he went back to his mom and he thanked her. And he said he was sorry for the way he had reacted, you know, and, and he said, thanks for uh, continuing to be my mom. And, and even though he had been angry when he first found out. And so this friend of mine, now he has a family of his own. He's married and they had a little girl, you know, biological daughter. And just this past year, they adopted a son. And uh, it wasn't because they couldn't have kids biologically. It was because they wanted to do this. They wanted to give this gift to another person, another child, to give them a gift of a family and a home and a future. And I'm so proud of this friend of mine, you know? I'm so impressed with his heart. See, because adoption, especially for us as Christians, it's, it's more than just a nice thing to do. See, adoption is, is a gospel picture. It's a picture of the gospel. The Bible says, as we see in our text here today, that adoption is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. It's one of the most powerful, most beautiful images that the Bible gives us of what the grace of God is to describe what God has done for us in Jesus. And the title of today's message is Adopted by God. And here in the text of Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, Paul gives us first the what the what in verses 12 and 13, and then he gives us the why in verses 14 through 17. We're going to, I'll explain that. So the what is found in verses 12 through 13. The what is, do not live according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. But he also gives the why, like why should you walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, in verses 14 through 17. He says, here's why, because of what Jesus did for you, because you are sons of God through Jesus Christ, because you've received the Spirit of adoption. So today we're going to look, we're actually going to flip those two, we're going to look at it backwards for our purposes, because we're jumping into an entire narrative, but for our purposes it's actually helpful to look at the why and then the what. So we're going to flip the order. But we're going to look at the why from verses 14 through 17, then the what, and we'll come back and do verses 12 and 13. So let's look at the why. Here's the why. You have been taken from a criminal case to an adoption hearing. You've been taken from a criminal case to an adoption hearing. The book of Romans uses a lot of legal language. Have you noticed that? A lot of legal terminology, stuff like law, judgment, transgression, guilt, innocence, righteousness, justification. These are all legal terms. And it's as if in this book, the writer is bringing us into the courtroom, God's courtroom, and God is the judge, and we are the accused. We are the defendant. We're the accused. And in the first few chapters of the book, first four chapters especially, what he shows us is not only are we accused, but we're totally guilty. Like, we are totally found guilty, and we have absolutely no way of defending ourselves. Our crime is treason, treason against the high king. See, every time we have sinned or gone against the will of God, it's an act of treason against the great king. We've said, you might be the king, you might have your rules in the way that you say that things should be done, but I don't want to follow those rules. I want to do things my way. In fact, I'd like to be my own king. In fact, I think I'm probably a better king than you are. And that is an act of treason, and the punishment for treason is death. And so here we are, bracing ourselves for sentencing when suddenly our defense attorney speaks up on our behalf and he says, hey, you know what? You know what? I, I want to help you. I want to help you. I'm going to make a trade with you. Tell me if you want this trade. I'm going to take the judgment 
that you deserve, the sentence that you were about to be handed, and I'm going to take that judgment, that punishment, and I'm going to take your death, and in return, I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you a new life. That's what Romans chapter 5 says, where it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God shows his love for us in this, that when we were still enemies, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he asks, so would you like to make that trade? And we're like, are you kidding me? Of course I want to make that trade. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. But wait, we say, wait, I have a question. Okay, so if we make this trade, right, like you're going to take my part and I'm going to take your part, well then what if we make this trade, but then let's say tomorrow or two weeks from now or, or maybe two hours from now, I fall right back into the same old habits, the same old ruts, the same things that you're saving me from now. What if I fall right back into those same old things? I don't want to. I'm going to try hard not to, but what if I mess up? What if I still make mistakes? Does this trade still stand? And that is chapters 6 and 7 of Romans, and that brings us here to chapter 8 where we get the answer. Yes, the answer is yes, because there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then, check this out, you ever stay up late at night, you see those TV commercials, the infomercials, right, where the guy comes on and he's like, uh, it cuts Julian fries, right, it slices, it dices, it cuts Julian fries, it cleans in those hard-to-reach places, but wait, there's more. You can get this offer for $9.99, three easy installments, but wait, there's more. And that's kind of what Romans is like. It tells us, hey, you've been saved, you've been acquitted, you're no longer going to be charged with this crime, but wait, there's more. And you're like, what? There's more? I didn't think there could be more. Like, what more is there? And, and you're like, this is already fantastic. And he says, but wait, there's more. And you're like, all right, what is it? And he says, well, well I'm going to give you a helper because, you, you know, I know you're going to struggle to do those things that I'm calling you to do. So I'm going to give you a helper, a helper. Yeah, like a counselor, a helper. And I'm going to give you this helper. I'm going to put him inside of you, the Holy Spirit, my spirit, God says, I'm going to put him inside of you. He's going to give you the strength to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. He's going to give you the strength to do the things that I call you to do, the things that I'm calling you to do as you live the life I'm calling you to and carry out the mission I'm giving you. And this helper, the Holy Spirit, he's going to help you to know me more. He's going to remind you of my words. He's going to illuminate and help you understand the scriptures in ways that you haven't before. And you, you say, well, that sounds fantastic. That's more than I could have ever asked for. And then the voice comes back, but wait, there's more. And you're like, what do you mean there's more? I didn't know there could possibly be more. I went from accused and condemned to acquitted and forgiven. And then you gave me a helper. This is more than I could have ever thought of or asked for. But then look what it says. Here's the more in chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And at this point, the entire courtroom would gasp. <gasps> adoption? Adoption? Are you serious? Adoption? This is the great gasp of the courtroom. We're, we're still in court, but now things have suddenly changed. No longer is this a death sentencing. Now this is an adoption hearing, and the judge who was sentencing you is now adopting you as his child. You know, in our society, we have this kind of common misnomer or misconception or, you know, kind of platitude that we say, and we say, oh, you know, well, we're all God's children. We're all God's children. Maybe you've heard people say that, like all human beings, we're all God's children. Now, it is true that God cares about all people because he created us with loving care. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. He created us in his own image. 
In the image of God, we bear that image, so we have innate and inherent value. We have equal value no matter who we are. But see, the term child of God specifically is reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and received him as their Savior and Lord. Check out what John, the gospel writer, said in the first chapter of John. He said, as many as received him, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believed in his name. See, this term, child of God, is specifically reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason is because this title, this position, it speaks of, it's a metaphor of, it speaks particularly of the relationship that we have with God now through Jesus that we didn't have otherwise. And that's what this picture of adoption tells us. It tells us a few things. So two things I want you to know that adoption insinuates to us. So number one, adoption tells us that no one is born into a true relationship with God. Like this isn't our natural state. So the fact that we have to receive this means that it's not our natural state that we're just born into. No one is a child of God by nature with the exception of one person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten son of God. The rest of us can become adopted sons of God. And we'll talk about why we use that word son and not child here in a minute. But number two, our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act on the part of the Father. So adoption tells us that our status, our relationship with God is now based on a legal act that the Father has done for us on our behalf. In other words, you can't adopt yourself. It's the Father, because of his love for you, he reaches out and he adopts you. Now, and maybe some of you know this, but uh, my wife and I, we did an adoption in 2011. We adopted someone. We had been foster parenting for a couple of years prior to that, and we decided to finalize it and make it official, and we took that foster child and we adopted him in the court. And it's been one of the greatest joys of our lives. We're so glad that we did it. We would do it all over again. But when we think about adoption, maybe when many of you think about adoption, we tend to think of the modern practice of adoption, because that's what we know. And let me tell you this, adoption means all of those things that modern adoption means. But keep this in mind. Paul was writing 2,000 years ago to a completely different group of people in a different culture. And 2,000 years ago, well, let's consider what adoption meant 2,000 years ago, and maybe that'll add some color to this picture that we're, we're seeing here of what it means to be adopted by God as a picture of the gospel. Okay, so let me just paint some, some historical background for you. Jesus was born in Israel after the time of a man named Alexander the Great. You've probably heard of him. He took over most of the known world. And here's what was interesting about Alexander the Great, as opposed to other big conquerors like Genghis Khan and other you know, people who tried to take over the world. Alexander the Great didn't want to just come in and take over other countries by force with military, right? Like just come in with the army and force them into submission. He had a different approach, which actually helped him be more successful. He wanted to woo nations so that they wanted him to come and take over. So they wanted to be part of this empire he was building. And the way that he did that was by spreading this idea called Hellenism. Hellenism simply means the Greek way of life. Hellas is the Greek name for Greece, right? So Hellenism is the Greek way of life. And so what he offered these people was education, a common language, and he said, come be part of this empire. It's going to be better for you. And so this Greek empire grew, and Greek thinking, Greek language spread throughout the world. It was called 
called Hellenism. And that, that's what Alexander the Great did. Now, by the time of Jesus, the Romans had taken over as the great power, but they had held on to all of the Hellenistic ideas. In fact, they even held on to the language to the point where at the time of Jesus, Greek was still the predominant language in the entire known world. I mean, think about this. He's writing to the Romans who live in Rome, right? They speak Latin in Rome, but he writes in Greek, not in Latin. Why? Because Greek was the language that everybody used still at that time. All of the New Testament was written in Greek because it was the universal language of that time. So Hellenism was very widespread, and Hellenism is basically humanism. Hellenism, humanism, very synonymous, right? It's all about celebrating the human intellect and the human physical form as the highest things in nature, right? As the greatest things, most beautiful things, the things of greatest value that exist. And that's why ancient Greek and Roman statues, if you've seen them, they often depict human bodies who are naked. And the other thing they would do is they would have these debates and disputes, and it was all about people showing off their intellectual prowess and their physical prowess. They created the gymnasium where they would wrestle, men would wrestle naked, as as I guess you do, right? And then they created the Olympic Games, and if you know about the Olympics, they competed in these feats of strength completely naked. Why did they do that? Like, why are they naked? Here's why. Because it was it was Hellenism. It was all about celebrating the male human form and the male intellect, which they believed to be the highest and greatest, most beautiful, most valuable things in the world. Now, maybe you say, oh, I love the classical period. You know, I love the philosophy. I love all the, the art and architecture. But I want you to think about it in this way. Think about what that means. Take Hellenism and humanism to its logical conclusion. If what is considered ideal and most valuable is a strong male form, a strong male intellect, then everything else is considered less than ideal, less valuable, subhuman perhaps. In other words, if you're a person with a disability, then you're less valuable, you're less human. If you're a person who happens to be, God forbid, female, then guess what? You fall in that category too. And so there was this practice, which we know a lot about through archaeology, uh, where people would dispose of their babies whom they deemed to be less valuable um, because they had deformity or because they were simply female. In Greece, archaeologists uncovered a well recently where they found the remains of 450 infants, and they deemed that these infants died of natural causes. In other words, they weren't stillborn. They were thrown alive into this well, and they died. The practice is well documented by writers at that time. Archaeologists found a letter, for example, from the first century from a guy named Hilarion. And Hilarion was writing to his wife. Obviously, he had gone away for work, and he's writing home to his wife. And here's what he said. He says, my sweet wife, don't worry about me. I'm staying to work a little longer. I'll come home as soon as I can. I'm sending money. You're like, wow, good guy, right? And his wife apparently was pregnant, and he says, I pray to this pagan deity all the time that you will have a great and successful and healthy pregnancy. And you're like, wow, what a stand-up guy. He even prays. But then he says this at the end of his letter. If the child is a boy, keep it. And if it's a girl, throw it in the trash. Like, what? Wow, that changed all of a sudden, didn't it? Right? The Greek poet Posidipus, he wrote this. Everyone raises a son, even if they are poor. But everyone exposes a daughter, even if they are rich. What does that even mean? What does it mean to expose a daughter? The word expose, this was a common practice in the world at that time. And here's what it meant. It meant that you would take your baby, and if you didn't want it, you would expose it to the elements 
and, and leave it to die. And so what people would do, if they didn't want to kill their babies directly, because in the Greek mind, that was something which was reserved only for the gods to take away a life. But what they would do is they would take their babies, and they would take them in a hill or in the forest, and they would set them down and just walk away. And they would leave that baby to fend for itself. Now, if you've ever been around a baby, you probably know babies don't fend for themselves, right? They just don't. So without food and water, exposed to the cold, not to mention wild animals, they would die. Within the first few days of a child's life, they had this thing called a patra familia, which means the father is the head of the household. And so the uh, father would decide within the first few days of a child's life if that child was worth raising or to be discarded. And so there was even a book written by a man named Serenus, and he, it was a handbook, basically, to tell parents whether or not to keep their babies or whether to dispose of their babies. And here's one of the things he wrote. You know, he said, when the baby's born, you're to test its joints and its reflexes. You're to see if it cries out when it is first born. Um, see that it is neither sluggish nor weak, and that everything is of proper size. But if these conditions are not seen, then the child is not worth keeping, and you are to expose this infant in the wildest place you know, amongst the hills where it may soonest die. That was the process of exposure. But here's the other thing that would happen. In a way, it was almost better for these babies to die because the other thing that would happen is there would be opportunistic people, right? They knew the places where people would take their babies. And so slave traders, other bad people would hide out in the hills and they would gather up these babies who were left by their parents and they would raise them. They'd sell them as slaves. They would raise them to be prostitutes. Either they would sell them as slaves. Sometimes if they had deformities, they'd sell them into the circus where people would pay money to watch people with deformities fight each other, sometimes to the death for money. It was a sick thing. And if you were a female, think about this, a lot of healthy females were discarded just because of their gender, because they were considered of lesser value because of their gender. And these girls would be rounded up by these bad people and forced into prostitution. Today, we call this sex slavery and sex trafficking. It's not new. It's been going on for a long time. So consider just how radical the Christian message was at a time like this, in a culture like this, where Christianity comes in, and Christianity says, as opposed to what you guys think, we know, we believe that all people have equal and intrinsic value, no matter what their gender, no matter what their level of physical ability or disability, no matter their ethnicity, if they have disabilities, if they're rich or poor, all people are of equal value to God. That was an incredibly revolutionary idea. We take that as like, of course, that's normal. Understand, for most of history, that has not been considered normal. That has not been taken for granted. And so Christians said, therefore, because this is true, therefore all people should have equal value to us as well. We should treat people that way. Now again, we think that that's normal, but for most of history that was not considered normal. And Christianity came along and it was absolutely revolutionary. And see, this kind of stuff, you know, this still goes on today. 21st century, I read an article this week in Time Magazine. This week, Time Magazine Online, they published this article about how China is officially ending their policy of limiting the number of children that a family can have. In 1979, they introduced the one-child policy, and that was in effect for a very long time. And a couple of years ago, China started allowing, 2013, they started allowing families to not just have one child, but now to have two children. But now, this year, they're scrapping the policy completely. And here's why, and here's what happened. Because look, people said, hey, if I can only have one kid then I want to have a perfect kid. And in their mind, a perfect kid meant a healthy male child. And so what would happen? They'd get an ultrasound, and even if the baby was healthy, if it was a girl, they'd get an abortion. 
And then they try again. If it was a girl, they get an abortion because they only get one baby, right? And they wanted to have a boy. If it was a, a baby and they found out that, you know, it wasn't perfectly healthy, they just get an abortion. And so what it's happened, what has happened is that especially in the Chinese countryside, there's this ratio of men is way more men than women. They said sometimes three, four times as many men as there are women. And, and it's really affecting their society. But here's another thing that happened is that in rural places, right? Like out in the countryside, not in the big cities where they don't have the same medical care and hospitals. So women would get pregnant. They might never report their pregnancy. They might wait, the baby's born, if there's uh, sick or something, or if it's a girl, then they would do exactly what they did in ancient Greece, right? We're 2,000 years later, and they're still doing the same thing. They would abandon their babies somewhere and just let nature take its course. And so this is the same thing that's happening even now, 2,000 years later. In fact, this article in Time Magazine showed a billboard in rural China where it said, uh, the billboard said, it is against the law to drown your daughter. It's against the law to drown your daughters. Like, they have to remind people of that. See, there was an early Christian leader named Tertullian. And Tertullian, he spoke out against this practice of exposing children and killing unwanted babies. And in his writings, Tertullian mentions that he said, you know what sets Christians apart? You know what makes Christians stand out? He said that what will happen is that the Christians know the places where the babies are being exposed, and so they'll go up there, and they'll just round up all these babies, and they'll save them from the elements, from the wild animals, and from the slave traders and pedophiles and, and the abusers. And they will raise these children as their own. They'll adopt them. Do you know that, that the orphanage is a Christian Invention. The Christians invented orphanages. They came about because Christians were going out and rescuing these abandoned children and clothing them and feeding them and raising them and adopting them. And of course, this didn't make any sense to the Greeks and the Romans, right? They were like, well, why in the world would you do that? They thought the Christians were foolish. I mean, why would you want to raise somebody else's child? That's no benefit to you. Not to mention, why would you want these broken children, right? The rejects of society. And you know what the Christians said? They said, because that's what our God did for us. Because that's who we are. And that's what our God did for us. See, adoption has always been important to Christians. And it comes from our theology. It comes from our theology. We believe that all people have inherent value. And because adoption is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. See, when you read that adoption is a picture of the gospel, I want you to understand what it meant at that time. It didn't mean, oh, I had a family and now I got a better family. No. You know what it meant? It meant you were destitute, poor, broken, abandoned, a helpless infant on top of a hill. And the outcome's not just death. It's sometimes worse than death. Slavery, exploitation, abuse. And what adoption means is that God climbed that hill. He climbed that hill to come and rescue you. He climbed the hill of Calvary with a cross on his back in order to save you, to rescue you from slavery, to rescue you from the treacherous elements of the world, and to save you. And so I just want to run through real quickly what are some characteristics of adoption and what does the Bible say about it in other places. Number one, adoption, the implication is that it was planned in advance. Planned in advance. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 5 says this. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. As I said, I went through an adoption. We actually had to do it twice. We had to do it once in Europe and once over here. And I can tell you it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a lot of work, right? Sometimes it can be a very long, tedious process. Sometimes it can be almost a humiliating process. They come into your house. They ask you a lot of intrusive questions. We had to get psychological evaluations to find out if we're fit to be parents. Like, we already had two kids, and we didn't have to get a psych evaluation to have those kids. But now they're making you, you know, go through all these hoops. And what's special about adoption, though, is that in adoption, you choose that child. 
You say, I didn't have to, but I do. I choose that child, and you place your love on them. And the Bible says, that is what God has done for you in Christ. See, adoptions are beautiful, but I'll tell you this. Personally, I'm especially moved by people who adopt, not because they can't have children biologically, but because even though they can have children biologically, they want to adopt because of what God has done for them. And I just put this out there for any of you who are listening. Maybe there's someone today, maybe there's some of you today who the Holy Spirit would stir you up and give you the desire and the calling to adopt a child. And if that's you, I pray that you respond to that calling. It's a good calling. It's a way that you can make a huge difference in a person's life. It's a way that you can live out the gospel towards another person and place your love on them, bless them, and change their life. Secondly, adoption comes at a cost. Look at what Galatians chapter 4 says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, adoption costs money. I don't know if you know that, but it's costly. God's grace to us came to him at a very high cost. It's free to us, but it wasn't free to him. It was a very high cost to him, but that's how much he loves us. That's what's communicated, is that he loves us that much. No price to pay is too high. Even the highest price, he's willing to do it. Thirdly, he rescues us. So we talked about that and that whole idea of what it meant in the Greek world to adopt. But he rescues us. Psalm 40 says this, he drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the bog, and he set my feet on a rock and made my steps secure. Number four, it changes your identity. You receive a new name, you receive a new status. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know about adoption that we learned when we went through it, one of the things is that when someone's adopted, they're actually issued a new birth certificate. Did you know that? And it's actually retroacted to their birth. And so they're issued a new birth certificate that's retroacted from birth. And so in verse 14, we see that what makes us sons of God is having the Spirit of God. So everyone who has been adopted by God has the Spirit of God and then is led by the Spirit of God. And so the question for us is this. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is leading, but are you following the Holy Spirit is leading, but are you following? That's the question for us, and we'll talk about that more as we finish in a minute. Number five, he pays your debt. So when you're adopted, all of your debts are absorbed by your new father. The debts that we have because of our sins, when he adopts you, he pays those debts. He's the only one who has the capital to do that. Isaiah 53 verse 5 describes it this way, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Sixth, he gives us an inheritance. So I remember when we went through our adoption process, one of the things the judge really wanted to emphasize to us, and we had to sign a paper about it, it was this, that if you adopt this child, Understand that they are now your legal heir. In other words, they are on the same level as your biological children. And what that means is that an adopted child is not a second-class child. They have the same rights, a full-fledged child, just like a biological child. And that's what it says in verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. What's true of Jesus as the Son of God is now true for us. So it, that's incredible to think about. It means that if Jesus will live with God forever, 
so will we. It means that if Jesus will be glorified, so will we. But by the way, I want to just say this. You might notice that it, it says the word child sometimes. Sometimes it says that you're a child of God. Sometimes it specifically says sons of God. Now, in our day and age, right, it's considered politically correct to always use the gender non-specific word child as opposed to son. But I want you to understand, he's writing 2,000 years ago to a specific culture in which sons were treated differently than daughters. Now, whether that's right or wrong is a completely different issue. He's just writing about this and alluding to this fact that sons are treated differently than daughters. And the implication is this, whether you're male or female in Christ, you are a son of God. In other words, the, the rights of a son as regards inheritance belong to you, whether you're male or female. Now, if that bothers some of you ladies, just remember this, that, that we're also told that we're the bride of Christ. So the dudes get to be a bride and the girls get to be a son, okay? So each, and each of these metaphors is important. And if we change the metaphor, we're actually losing something special and something important that the metaphor tells us about our relationship with God through Jesus. And seventhly, finally, we experience the transforming love of a true dad. The transforming love of a true dad. Verse 15 says, For if you, you have, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba, it's just their word for daddy, Papa, Daddy. It's the word that a child would use to talk to their father. And it speaks of intimacy. See, it's one thing to be a father. It's another thing to be a dad. Right? To be a father, all you gotta do is provide half of the genetic makeup, half the DNA to create that person. But to be a dad is so much more. Have you ever seen someone who had an absentee father or they grew up with it without their dad around? And, and then they meet their father when they're grown up or an adult. You know what they do? They don't run up to him and say, hey daddy, and hug him. No, they don't. They, they like walk up, they stick out their hand for a handshake, and they say, hi. I'm Nick. Nice to meet you, right? It's very cordial. It's very formal because they don't have that background, right? And But this, again, is saying this isn't cordial. This isn't formal. This is a language of intimacy and trust. He's not just our father. He's our dad. And the love of a dad is transforming. True love is transforming. Have you ever seen somebody transformed by love, right? Like somebody who's hard and cold and defensive and fearful, but then they experience love and security and all of a sudden they kind of blossom and they open up like a flower in the sun. They become softer and kinder and they're less afraid. That's a big part of that is feeling secure. And that's what it says in verse 15. We have this security. The love of God gives us security. A slave or a servant always lives in fear. If they don't behave, they'll get beaten, or maybe they get fired, they lose their job. But see, in a parent-child relationship, there's no fear of losing that status, no fear of losing that relationship. There's a security, right? Like a good dad tells their kids, no matter what you do, no matter what happens, I'll always be your dad. You'll always be my son. You'll always be my daughter. There's a sense of assurance that's what it says in verse 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's that inner witness of the Holy Spirit within us that says, yes, you belong to God. And check out what it says in, in 1 John chapter 3 about this transforming love. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is it doesn't know Him. Beloved, we are now God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And check this out. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, when you come to know the love of God, when you really experience it, when you understand what he has done for you, here's the effect it has on you. It makes you want to be like your dad. 
right? Like every good kid, every kid who has a good dad says that. I want to be like my dad. You know, studies show that the number one influence on your behavior as an adult, whether you like it or not, right, is going to be what you experienced uh, for, and observed from your parents. Doesn't It's not fatalistic, right? Like you can get out of it, but it's the number one uh, influence on your life. What did you see and observe from your parents? And the same is true of God. The more you get to know him, the more you will be transformed by his love. And as a result, you become more and more like him. And that brings us full circle to where we started. It brings us back to verses 12 and 13, the what, right? Living according to this new identity, not as a slave to sin, but as a son of God. And maybe you say, well, you know, all that stuff was interesting about adoption and all that. It's very interesting information, but I don't, I don't really know. What does this do for me in my marriage? What does this do for me as I go back to work tomorrow? You know, uh, how does this Sunday, how should this affect my Monday? Right, here's, here's how. Because you've been adopted by God, because you, you've been rescued and given a new identity in Jesus Christ, because you have the security of being loved by God, you're no longer a slave to sin, but now you're a child of God. And here's what that means. It means that you are free to live a new way, with a new identity. You don't have to be a slave to sin. Now you're a child of God. And so uh, it says there in verse 12, it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If by the Spirit you live, uh, you, sorry, you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. In other words, the old way of life, living according to the flesh, it leads to death, pain, and destruction. The message of the gospel, on the other hand, is that in Christ, God has pulled you out of that Set your feet on a new path, the path of life and hope and joy. And he's given you the Holy Spirit to lead you and to empower you to live that new life. The Spirit is leading. Will we follow? That's the question for us. Lord, we thank you for this great truth, this truth of the gospel. Lord, that you have adopted us. You have rescued us. We were uh, destitute, abandoned, and alone, and you came to us and saved us because of your love. And we want to remember that every day of our lives. Lord, thank you that beyond that, you've given us your spirit to enable us and guide us in this new way of life. I pray that truly, Lord, we would follow you as you lead us into holiness, into life, and into peace. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today who hasn't yet entered into that relationship. They say, well, that all sounds amazing, but I don't even know if I am a child of God according to uh, that definition. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is in that situation. Lord, today would be the day when they say yes, when they surrender themselves to you. And they say, yes, Lord, I want to be your child. Thank you for what you did for me. I receive you, Jesus, and I want to be your child. And I pray that that would be the case this morning for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 